This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Guido's Pizza. Located on International Airport Road in Anchorage, Guido's has been serving the best pizza, pasta, sandwiches, and more since 1984. Guido's is open daily for dine-in service from 11 a.m. to midnight, and they do takeout and delivery until 2 a.m. Whether I'm dining in a Guido's or ordering for delivery, the hardest part for me is always choosing what to get because they have so many amazing items on their menu. If you're looking for a quick bite or want to order food for a big party, Guido's is the place to go. Tell them Jeff from the Landmine sent you. Okay, back here in studio with uh, congressional candidate Nick Begich. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for thanks for having me back. Got to look you up. I don't know when you were on last time, but it was last year, and it was we had a really good. I remember that was a long conversation. We talked about a lot of things. Oh, we did. It was a wide ranging discussion. And that's what we do here at Landmine Radio. We just you know we cover everything. I like the I like the long form. Well, know, I tell people format. you know this is not. I mean, I didn't you know invent this, but like Joe Rogue and other people, they do these. You can actually hear from people. Yeah. Whereas if it's like, you know, the news or Channel 2 or whatever, CNN, it's like CNN, it's like a soundbite. That's right. 15 you know? seconds, 30 if you're lucky. Especially from politicians. Yeah. You know, a lot, and a lot of them don't want to, the, the good ones, they'll talk to you. Yeah. You know, and it's sometimes hard to get, some people don't want to talk because they don't, they're scared to say too much. But That's right. when you do get somebody like you or you know, legislators I talk to that really want to like, talk and tell you what they think about, yep. you know, it's a good way to kind of hear what people really, really well, think. And you can explore some different ideas, right? Because there's a lot of different perspectives on many of the issues we we end up dealing with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's good. It's good to have that kind of exchange. Well, let's talk about uh, your race. You filed to run for the, for the Congress again. We'll talk about that. Um, let's go back a little bit. You ran last time and kind of the guinea pig of the first, after Don Young passed away, there was a special election for the the rank was the open primary and then the rank choice. Yep. And we were all watching it pretty close. Obviously, Mary Paltola ended up winning, but you and kind of Sarah Palin was kind of bizarre because she had kind of gone after you, her people, but didn't really go after Paltola. In fact, kind of was complimentary of Paltola. So it was kind of a weird. So let's talk a little bit about you know I know there was a couple that was special and then regular. Um, what do you, you know, dissect that a little bit and then, and then talk about why you're, why you're running again and, you know, next year yeah. it can be a very different race with the congr- presidential year. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, what a race to sort of run through ranked choice voting for the first time this last cycle. I mean, to have a special election that sort of accelerated the timeline for, uh, the, the ranked choice rollout. Uh, we had 50 people, I, th- I think at one point in the race, mm-hmm. a couple of people dropped out before the filing deadline, but nearly everyone stayed in and uh, we had everyone from Santa Claus to Sarah Palin and every, everyone in between. And uh, I, I don't know much about this person yeah. other than the name, but one of my, one of my, I'll be honest, favorites was Silvio Pellegrini <laughs> only because <laughs> yeah. what a name. Yeah. I mean, I don't Silvio Pellegrini. I don't think we met on the campaign. Did you ever trail. interact yeah. with Mr. Pellegrini? I, I don't recall having done so, but uh, it's certainly possible. I think one of the yeah. more excitable ones was Chris by. Oh, Libertar- Chris! Yeah, libertarian guy. Yeah, he was- yeah, he was fun. He's he's a good guy. He's a fishing guide up in uh, in Fairbanks. Libertarian. He got real animated during the the Channel Two debate. Yeah, was. I think he really. I think he was finally liking his. I feel like Libert. I was a Republican for a long time. Oh eight. I was a Ron Paul guy. Yeah. I went to the Republican convention. That was when we all got kicked out by Randy, and they kicked all the Ron Paul people out, and Captain Cook. I didn't know that about you. I didn't know you were there. Oh yeah, wow. no, no, I was there. I was yeah. so I've told this story before, but I didn't know how this worked. I just loved Ron Paul, and I was young, and I was like, "Well, I guess you have to go to some convention. What the fuck is that?" So I go to my district convention, and it was like all the, it was like so crazy. It was some some school, and it was hyper. You can imagine there were people who showed up. A lot of energy, things, very, yeah. very Republican, and all this stuff was going on in Obama year. And then um, I went to the I became a delegate, and I got to the Captain Cook, and I had to pay like. 300 bucks or whatever it was. And I was in college. I don't even, I was like, that was a lot of money to me. Right. But I was so excited for Ron Paul. I went and took the money out of the ATM and I paid it. And, and then wow. we all, we all ended up getting kicked. We all went downstairs to the, they had this Ron Paul guy. We were, there was going to be like an insurrection. We were going to like go up there and like take over. They talked us down. Schaefer Cox was down there in that room. Really? Oh yeah. It was a lot of people. Wow. And, and then anyways, I, I just disillusioned wild. and then I became a libertarian for a while. Oh, okay. And, yeah. and man, yeah. I mean, I, I think most of us can identify with like libertarian principles of like live and let live and, right. you know, but you start to get a little older and you start to think like those are great ideas, but 
you know, <laughs> the idea of kind of like, fuck it, let it roll. Just whatever happens is fine. Um, doesn't, but I went to some of their like meetings, like their conventions. Yeah. One was at the golden lion and there was this guy there and he had a, like a, like a long barrel revolver on his hip, which is, that's sure. cool. Yeah. And I, it was a, like a 40, I think it was a 44. And I was like, man, that's a, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of weapon there. I said, you know, do you, what's up with that? You know, just kind of asking him and he's like, you're going to try to take it away. Cause you, you ain't taking my gun. I said, no, 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 whoa, I'm not. Whoa, whoa. No, Hold sir. <laughs> right. And then there was a guy there who was, um, my old professor actually is Australian as an economist. Okay. UAA, super smart guy, very kind of free market, um, you know, economist. And he was giving a speech. And then afterwards, this guy was in the crowd and he was like, I have an idea. We make one, at the time it was like, whatever, 18 tr- debt, one $18 trillion note, give it to China, bam, debt free. <laughs> can you can you cash an eighteen trillion dollar note? Um, and this, yeah, and this guy Paul Johnson's like up there, you know, and he's taking questions. He's like, well, there's some other problems associated with that inflation and kind yeah. of the trust of the. He goes, no, it's one note, bam, it's done. And he got so like 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 this guy Paul Johnson from UA is gonna like be in charge of you know monetary right. policy, right? And and I'd go to these meetings and man, it's just some. That party attracts some really interesting people. There's a lot of uh, diverse ideas that get presented there. Um, I mean, I mean, you get people who are. I mean, one problem with that idea in particular is that uh, China doesn't hold 18 trillion dollars in U.S. dollars or treasury <laughs> treasuries. So you know, I think they're down to about a trillion right now. Yeah. So Japan, I think doesn't Japan? I mean, I feel like I heard Japan and one other country. Oh, actually, have more debt on on our debt than China. They do now. Yeah, China's been actually gradually reducing their holdings of U.S. dollars and and uh, and U.S. Treasuries. Have you heard? I mean, I keep reading and hearing about the BRIC and you know Russia, India, China, and this. Now the Saudis are involved in this kind of maybe new currency or this. They're trying to get away from the dollar for like oil and. That's right. Is that really gonna? I mean, because that would really screw us up. I think. Well, you know, I wouldn't it? I, I do. I think that it's uh, it's definitely problematic for the long-term durability of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency for the world. What they're trying to propose is a commodity-backed currency, something that would be backed by a basket of commodities, including gold and silver and oil and maybe critical minerals and some other things uh, that would really have some redeemability, some redeemable value. What those countries are also doing is creating uh, bilateral agreements among one another to settle trade uh, in their local currencies. And we're already starting to see that happen uh, with India and Russia and uh, Russia and China and some of these other nations where they're not using the U.S. dollar in order to transact with one another. And that is actually uh, possibly in the short run an even bigger threat to the U.S.'s uh, reserve currency status. You know, like looking back historically after World War Two and Bretton Woods and all, you know, Marshall Plan. I mean, we were like, we were it. That's it. Yeah, we, we were everything: trade, well, dollar, all the, you know, every like. And then we fast forward, and we're not it anymore. Well, you know? we still, I mean, we're still the the power, but that's right. Well, and part of the reason we have the power is because what we've done is we've securitized uh, debt instruments and sent them worldwide. So we've got mortgage-backed securities, U.S. treasuries and, and T-bills, right, that are at a such a large magnitude that we have kind of forced the world to rely on the dollar because their debt is denominated in dollars. So what's debt to us is assets to them, and they need the dollar to stay stay mm-hmm. solid in order for them to have a, a real yield. I have a buddy now, you know, years, two years, three years ago, T-bill yield was 1% or something. It was nothing, yeah. And now he's... Put in a bunch of his money, six percent yield now. It's unbelievable on T bills. Yeah, money markets are paying five, five and a half. Uh, you don't even have to have to wade into the T bill world. You can do that, and even the ten year um, is up past four percent right now. And it's driven thirty year mortgages to twenty, twenty three, twenty four year highs. Yeah, I mean, and the other problem is uh, prices aren't going down. Normally, interest rates go up, prices go down. But because of the global crisis, there wasn't before that there was an overbuild. Since then, there's been an underbuild. That's right. There's no inventory, 
and we see this very clearly here in, in Anchorage. I mean, there's yeah. not that many houses on the market at all, period. That's right. And and the ones that do go up for sale are selling for as much as they were before years ago when the rates were, or more, and now you're paying 7%. Well, and the problem, too, is that if you're somebody who's trying to buy a home, right, uh, you're probably renting. And if you're renting, the rents are going up faster than the uh, than the prices on the homes. And so your ability to save for a down payment is also diminished. What do you, you know, I'm reading this book now, um, big book, Rick Perlstein called Reagan Land. And a big part of it is basically with the 70s and, you know, Ford and Carter and what happened. And, um, you know, as much as I get worried about how things are going right now and they aren't going good, I think we can all agree. Yeah. There was big problems in the 70s, social issues, inflation, um, oil, you know, there was all kinds of these problems. And I think mortgages were 18%. Oh, they were unbelievable. Why even finance a home? It didn't even make sense. And this is kind of what we can talk about that period now that kind of drove in the Reagan revolution and all that. But, you know, for a long time, mortgages were 2 3%. There was, you know, 9-11, global financial crisis. Now we're back up to a point where before, you know, 2000, when they were higher, I mean, is this where they should be? Like, we also got so used to the cheap money, easy money. Right. That's probably not sustainable forever. But also now we're at a place where it's hard to get a home in anyways. That's and, right. and high rate interest rates. So what, you know, what do you think about all of those? Well, you know, I think, I think part of the problem is, and you can trace it all the way back to, ni- I think it's 1971, when Nixon took us, took us off the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And uh, the gold standard was was a way for us to sort of tie down monetary policy and keep things tight, right? And so what has occurred is, you know, with no with no with no redeemability to a real asset, the U.S. dollar um, is able to be created ad nauseum. So the Fed can decide we're going to support uh, the U.S. Treasury's demand, no matter what it is, for T bills. And so, literally in the crisis, they printed four or five trillion dollars just at the at the press of a button digitally and shot that through the economy and they could do that because it wasn't tied to anything real well i remember uh vividly it was like april or whenever they passed the care the first one was the cares act right yep and i there was a press call it was lisa murkowski dan sullivan and it was on the phone and i was in juno at the time and we all got it you know they would go around for questions and i said um are you guys worried about inflation and I think people kind of laughed at me because nobody had talked about inflation for right. decades. Nobody yeah. even like, it was like inflation. What are you talking about? 2% or something. It's like nobody. Right. And, and um, Dan, Dan kind of didn't really say much, but Le- it was funny. Murkowski was like, I, 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 I am worried about that. Like that, that, but we have to do this, et cetera. And then it kind of like didn't happen for a while, mm-hmm. but I was like, there is no way you can, produce as much money as like almost the but yearly budget. That's right. And not have some inflationary. And now it's worse 80, than I even thought it was going to be. That's right. 80%, 80% of the money that is circulating in the economy mm. today was created in the last three years. I know it's, it's just, it's wild to think of, of the growth of the money supply. Well, and, and this is what to me is, you know, a little, little wild, you know, the fed is trying to solve a problem that was created by a dramatic increase in the money supply by raising interest rates. What they should be doing is they should be reducing their balance sheet instead. Mm-hmm. And they're doing that. They're doing a little bit of How do you do that? Tightening. I mean, you have to tax, right? Or you have to stop well, reduce here's, spending. Here's the challenge they have now. So when when interest rates were, you know, down around 0%, you know, or a quarter percent or half a percent, the bond prices uh, were higher. When you raise rates, the value of those bonds drops. Well, this is what happened with these banks, right? The Silicon Valley, these banks had all these bonds on their, they bought all these bonds yeah, and then the rates went up and then the bonds became not worthless, but the, the value of the bond went way down. That's right. And it's used as collateral for the reserve requirements. And so it caused all kinds of crises there, but the feds kind of, in, they created this problem for themselves so that the mark to market value of their balance sheet uh, dropped significantly because they raised rates. Instead of raising rates, they should have moved that asset off of their books and reduced the money supply, and you would have had far fewer issues throughout the economy, in my view. How do they move? Do they sell it? They sell it. They sell it in an open market auction. Just enter the market and sell the bonds that they hold because they currently they but there hold. Still, about, I mean, the money supply would still be. It would actually it would actually reduce the money supply. So, if for example, 
the Fed creates, uh, let's say, $8 trillion in balance sheet assets, right? So they create the cash, they go buy the treasuries and the mortgage-backed securities, and they hold those assets on the books. So the cash is now flow- flowing through the economy, but they've got these assets. Mm-hmm. In order to retire the cash... Oh, if they sell them, then they, 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 they don't put the cash back. Okay, I see. That's right. So they sell those assets back to the market and retire the cash. So why didn't they do that? Great question. I guess that's a... Policy Janet, discussion. Janet Yellen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I also think well, that... Well, not a, not, a, not a Yellen question because she's on the Treasury side. Maybe oh, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of uh, Powell, right? Yeah. Is it Powell? Is he the chair of the Fed? Yeah, the chair chair of the Fed is uh, Jerome Powell. Powell. Yeah, Jerome yeah. Powell, yeah. So, so, but the other thing is um, to leave the rates low for, I mean, you, I guess part of it is they, this happened in the 80s, right? They wanted to cool, th- they, they, had to, they had to cool it down. Yeah. And then they, they raised the rates. Um, and that's where that, you know, created these problems with the you know, mortgage rates on you know, the 18%, but then eventually they went down. But um, the other problem is that with the super low rates, doesn't it discourage people to, to save money? You know, it's, uh, it, what it does is it encourages people to invest money, right? If, if you've got, if you've got low rates, business or another, right, you're yeah. investing it outside of T-bills, you're, you're putting it into something else. Um, in fact, in the last few months, it's the first time in many, many years that we've actually seen a real yield on treasuries, meaning that the treasury yield is above the rate of inflation. We haven't seen that in a long time. So in the past, even if you put your money in treasuries, you were losing money because it, the yield it's lower than inflation. Yeah. yeah. So what it does is it, it pushes money into uh, investments, into the stock market, into private equity and other asset classes. And um, what a lot of people expected that hasn't really materialized yet. A lot of people expected the market to crash as rates went up and that hasn't really happened. Not in the way that do people you, expected. What do you really think is going on? I mean, is it a, is there a bubble? Is, is, because I think we all know, we all feel things aren't good, right? But but the market the market hasn't really there hasn't been a big correction, um, you know, stocks are still doing okay. But Some, I, I feel yeah. like I I just feel like something's not right. I mean, I think we all feel like something's not right. Well, right about seventy percent of uh, of the U.S.'s GDP is driven by the U.S. consumer, and so we have a real consumer based economy, right? Uh, the what they call excess savings. Uh, is almost out. Most uh, economists forecast that within this quarter or early next quarter, uh, we will be we will have exhausted the excess savings that were generated during COVID when everyone was locked down. They weren't spending money and all these things. They were saving money. That's going to be gone. In addition to that, the uh, the expiration of the moratorium on um, student loan repayments is that's, coming that's, up. I mean, I, I've got not very a few. I got a few thousand bucks left. I need to pay off, but. Yeah, I got the email, and it's like you know, I think you got to start paying in October, and you know, whatever. But it, there's all this weird stuff. Well, if you can't afford it, like, right? You there's all not these pay new for programs it. and different things. But, but I'm, they, yeah. they're they're starting to tell people, yeah, you got to start repaying the loans. That's right. So that's those two things in combination could lead to an accelerated slowdown in the economy. I mean, there's still Goldman Sachs came out, I want to say, a week or two ago, and reduced their probability of a recession from twenty to fifteen percent. We'll see, right? But I, I think the challenge that we're seeing, um, a lot of people are having, I'm hearing this you know, already on the campaign trail, people are telling me, look, you know, I had one job, now I need two jobs. Oh, you I, know, I, I hear that a lot. You know, I'm, I'm picking up work on the side, picking up side gigs so that I can just make ends meet. I just I just went to lunch a couple of days ago at Matsu Brewing Company. And I had the server, kind of nice guy. Yep. And then later, um, somebody invited me to dinner at Outback, same guy. Wow. And I was like, hey, what's up? He's like, yeah, I work two jobs. I got a, you know, same day, two, two jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like we were talking about a minute ago, that the rents have gone up substantially, uh, not just in Anchorage, not just in Alaska, but across the country. I mean, th- think of what, you know, just the rent, like the cost of a car payment and a rent payment is compared to the average wage. It's like a big part of your income is being consumed with just ba- I mean, I've always said this. And I know things are changing and we've had a big, you know, information kind of internet growth of all these different jobs and what's been happening compared to, you know, widgets and assembly lines. But if you're willing to work 40 hours a week in this country, I think you should be able to live okay. You should be able to make it. Yeah. You should be able to, yeah. you know, survive and yep. have a house and, 
you know, going on a fucking vacation once once a year or something. Well, and that's how it used to be, right? I mean, if and, and you can go back historically. I, I've even seen some some uh, tweets recently that kind of cite some of the numbers back in the 1930s. You know, somebody could live on uh, a family could live on one income and have a you have a home. You know, they they would have transportation. College was affordable. And when you when you go back and you look at some of the things that um, that have occurred. Uh, you start to realize that in many of these cases, it's government intervention that's actually. Well, if you, if you look things. at if you yeah. look at like where the government's most involved in like education, like healthcare, you know, even energy. If you look at the like way average wage price over time compared to the cost of energy, healthcare, education. I mean, these these are lines that are going highly oh, like, through the roof, vertical almost. Yeah. You know, they're going up, but the wage isn't. No, the wage has been flat. And what's interesting is you can track that uh, that. There was a disconnect, okay? It used to be that wages mapped U.S. productivity gains almost one-to-one. Yeah, no, I've seen, the, I've yeah. seen that chart. And that, that broke the moment we went off the gold standard. That broke the moment we went off the gold standard. If you go back about 1972, those two lines completely disconnect and continue to remain, you know, disconnected at, an, at, a, at a growing rate. Well, and it's all, yeah, and if you, that's about the same time when the government got more involved in education and, you know, before that... But really, since that point, you know, healthcare and um, it's it's it makes me think a lot about you know what's going to happen in this country. And I mean, how, how do so many people who are willing to work not make it? I mean, historically, if you look back in those situations, it doesn't end up good. No, when a lot of people can't yeah. make it, and when they're feel like you know everybody else, the rich are getting richer, but they aren't. You know, look at Russia, France. You know, revolu- like that's our, right. Our revolution. You, you know, I mean, all these different. That's um, right. It's not good. No, you, you, what what we've seen, I, I believe, in the last fifty years is um, a, a gradual a gradual increase in the strip mining of the middle class. You're seeing the middle class having less and less of an ability to maintain their lifestyle, and um, you know you, when you start to lose that socioeconomic mobility that kind of defines the United States, your people are missing out on the opportunity for the American dream, right? Maybe they're born in a situation that's really tough, but they have the ability to become a millionaire. That's always been sort of the promise of America. If you work hard, you make the right decisions, you can make it. And fewer and fewer people are seeing mm-hmm. that as a possibility for themselves. I mean, so you're running for, for Congress here, or one, Alaska's one seat. Right now it's very close. I think the Republicans had five advantage, and we saw the whole 18 rounds of vote, whatever it was, 15 rounds of votes to elect McCarty. But, you know, you got Biden as president, and... You know, looking back, I think everybody would agree when Trump was president, things were pretty good. You know, it was great. It was great. Minus uh, economically, COVID, COVID right. fucked everything up. Yeah. But, but it just feels bad. And I'm not, you know, a Trumper or anything, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty close to getting on board because if you look at, I've never, I've never met, have you ever met a Biden supporter? Like a hardcore, like, have you ever been you the know, equivalent I, of a Trump supporter for Biden? I have, I've never met that I have person. I honestly never met anyone who was enthusiastically uh, supporting Joe Biden. I've, I've never have. I've met people, plenty of people said, yeah, I voted for him. I kind of had to, you know, whatever. It wasn't like an exciting thing. Um, but but just where the country is now and where it, you know, is going to go is, this is a big question for this election, I think, you know, for this it, next, next year's it, election. It's a huge question. And, um you know, what we've seen, you know, used to be uh, you had your JFK Democrats, right? Ask which, not what which, your which. country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Today, we've got, uh, you know, a president that's pushing 80. He's having a hard time getting around. You know, he's tripping over things on stages. He's he's reading the I, mean, I, I think yeah. any of us can see, even McConnell, too, has got a few of those in the past month, those kind of freeze-ups, but... We can see it. I mean, this guy, I just saw this Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. These guys are same age, but they're doing an album. I mean, they're, they're with it. You know, you can tell those guys right. are. Yeah. Makes me question about, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I and mean, maybe that's not that bad. Because <laughs> you see this video? <laughs> I posted this well, it's video. It's a vastly different outcome for two different people, you know. and, and uh, But you, you look at Biden and you just, you just know, like, this, is, this guy's not with it. He, he's not. And we have to be honest about that. And to your point, there's a lot of people in, in the Congress right now that are also not with it. I mean, it. You got uh, Feinstein, Feinstein is 90. So, right. so, so, so now it's funny. You know, you know one of McConnell's biggest supporters was re- recently? Who's Biden. 
Really? He came out and said, "Oh yeah, because because he doesn't. I didn't see that because yeah. he doesn't want to be the next. Like, if, well, if we if they push out McConnell, then he's next. Yeah. So you have these like Feinstein. You're right, Feinstein. It's funny. I was listening to Ben Shapiro uh, a few days ago or last week about kind of who's in line, and it's like Barrasso and these guys, and they're in their seventies. They're they're fucking spring chickens. Oh my In their seventies, you know, compared to well, you know, go, and and let's just go back to that JFK Democrat. JFK was a young president. Forties, right? right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I. I think at this time in our nation's history, in our world's history, in the history of, you know, sort of the arc of human civilization, we need people who are able to adapt quickly, who are able to absorb information rapidly, who are able to understand the implications of things like AI and how it's going to impact the world, right? And uh, you can't have somebody who's taken 40% of their presidency and going on vacation, which is what's happening with Joe Biden. You know, we had the fires in... Hawaii is you an see example. That, did you see that thing he said to those, oh, my God, about his own fire, which was turns out it was a 20-minute kitchen that did nothing, no yeah. damage. Or he was worried and, he might lose his Corvette, yeah. and then it turned out he didn't lose his Corvette and how wonderful that was. It, 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 tone deaf. Oh, it was. I watched it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is just. And it's, it's so interesting how he's just kind of, I mean, I, I always go back now to the Hunter Biden thing, and, and it's pretty clear what the hell was happening. Yeah. We know what was going on with him and Joe and, all, you know, and his influence peddling with, you know, Burisma and Ukraine and China. Right, right. If that was Don Jr. Oh, it'd be, oh, my gosh. Think about if that was Don yeah. Jr. Right. Oh, my holy. I mean, what, could you imagine the, the press? And, and it's just kind of ignored. It's just, I mean, it's kind of covered a little bit, but it's not really like, you know, this whole thing now. It's like he was, well, maybe he went and, you know, asked about the weather, which, which. I, the best example of that is the, the mob doesn't go to a meeting and say, like, if you don't friggin' pay me, you're going to, you know, have big problems. Yeah. The mob goes to the meeting and says, hey, how's the weather? See you around. <laughs> right. I mean, that's what happened, right? I mean, well, you, dad, know, you know, Big Daddy came by, and we all know it's you, going. You've, you've traveled a lot in your life, right? You've been to, you've been to places that are outside of, you know, Western civilization. Mm, yeah, many times, and, yeah. Yeah, and uh, this is not how the rest of the world operates. You don't get millions of dollars from a place like Ukraine for nothing. China. And China. Because yeah. Hunter Biden was a lobbyist before, and he was, you know, I mean, rather successful. Dad's obviously a senator. He's, you know, he's, I think he was a lawyer, too. And then he, dad became vice president, so he couldn't really be lobbying anymore. Yeah. So he goes abroad. Yeah. Which is all kinds of problems with that in itself. Right. But then, I mean, to me, the biggest smoking gun with this whole deal with Biden is um, that, that meeting, that interview they did where he basically admits to holding back the money for Ukraine, the billion dollars, if they didn't fire the prosecutor. Who was going after Burisma? It's, he would said shock, it. It shocks my It's mind. not even yeah. like a secret. It's, he said it he openly. Said it. It's, it's, right. it's on record. He, bra- he, was bra- he, was, he was. I remember he, when he did it. He was bragging. Right? I was watching the news when he was doing it. It wasn't like it, he admitted yeah. it in like some awkward. He was bragging about it. That's right. And uh, Call Obama. You'll see. Yeah. He says. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's right there in your face. And it's corruption. It's a, and it's a uh, it's it's absolutely foreign influence, right? We, we're hearing all about how uh, we're the victims of foreign influence. We've been the perpetrator of foreign influence for decades in this nation. I, mean, I think you know, there's all these Trump indictments, and you know, I mean, the documents one it doesn't sound great. You know, he's basically admitting, oh, I got this thing, I shouldn't. But I mean, for anybody like I'm, consider myself an objective person. I think we can all see it's like. Well, well, why didn't Hillary Clinton get in trouble? Why doesn't Joe Biden get in trouble? But why does Trump get in trouble? I mean, the public sees that, right? You know, and they and they and their his numbers are going up. It's kind of I, I think it baffles the left. I think they're just totally stunned that uh, you know the former president is being indicted and his numbers are going up. And I think you know a lot of folks uh, may have been ready to move on, but when you you see the former president uh, getting in, indictment after indictment after indictment, it starts to look. You know, a little curious for folks. They're going, well, "Hey, what is it, what is happening?" It feels yeah. banana republic. Yeah, I mean, that's what Ford, Ford pardoned Nixon because he knew country can't be going through that. No, and we've gone, we've crossed the Rubicon here on this thing. We have, and and the the danger, of course, is that now you're setting precedent, and uh, you know, you, you start do you start swinging the pendulum this violently from election cycle to election cycle, and the implications to the nation are, are hard to predict, but they're not good. So in your in your race, um, you know it's a presidential year. We're talking about that's going to drive out naturally more voters, but also we have a lot of military here in Alaska who don't don't you know vote as much during the off years. 
what, what do you, I mean, that's what I've been talking to people about, you know, depending if it's, if it is just you and let's say if it's, you're the Republican and she's the Democrat and there's going to be some other people there. Yep. Um, I don't think anybody's going to challenge her on the Democratic side. You know, will there be another person on the Republican? I mean, the Republicans seem to love to do that to each other. It's like a pastime I, now at this point. I hope we don't do that this time. I think, uh, I think we learned from the last election that that's not a, that's not a good approach under ranked choice voting. Uh, we've got a ballot exhaustion effect that goes in, mm-hmm. and there's no amount of uh, encouragement that you can provide for rank the red that's going to convince some folks. They're going to say, "Look, I'm not doing that. I'm going to rank one and be done." And uh, you know, if we're going to if we're going to take back the seat, we're going to have to we're going to have to have a heads up. So, how do you see this going with that presidential uh, impact of of you know military more more voters in general, but military voters, and then you know, Alaska's been voting. Re- I think the last time we voted for a Democrat might have been Kennedy, you know, in the 60s. So it's a it's a red state. Yep. But, you know, last time we saw Mary won, but then Dunleavy won too, and so did Murkowski. Um, how, do, how do you think the dynamic changes this time? Well, I think— And, and, and is yeah. this race going to be a referendum on, on Biden? Yeah, you, so, so typically in uh, presidential election years in Alaska, you go from uh, 50% turnout to a 60% turnout. So you get a 10-point bump. In, which is, which is in, in politics, a lot. A significant. It's 20% more voters yeah. uh, that end up voting. And, um, look, I, I still believe that we're a red state. I think uh, if we were not a red state, Democrats would actually be able to run on a Democrat platform. But they can't do that and win in, in Alaska. They've got to run as a hard moderate or almost a moderate Republican in order to convince the public that they should yeah, vote no, for. So, oil and gas, guns, right? That's right. So we're, we're still a red state. Um, and I think we're going to be able to make that uh, a little bit more clear in this election cycle when we don't have the distractions of a governor's race. We don't have the distractions of a Senate race. We've, we've got the tailwind of a presidential election year that's going to pull more people out to vote. Yeah, that's the other thing, too, this time. You're, you're right. I mean, there, last time there was three statewide races. Uh, this time there's one. It'll be the presidential thing, too, and then maybe some ballot initiatives. But there's not going to be... That's a big race. Governor, U.S. Senate, U.S. House, all in one year. That's a big, that's a big election. That's right. And, you know, last time, because of, because of the number of people that were involved, because of the amount of money that was involved, because um, the fact that, uh, you know, we were, there was a lot of personalities in that race, uh, now we've got a, a clearly contrasting record. So Mary Paltolis had to go down to D.C. And in D.C., you've got to take some tough votes, right? You're a yes or a no. You're not a yes, maybe, or a no, maybe. You're a yes or a no. I think they have a present. Don't they have that option? They, they've, they've got a present. We don't have that yeah. in Juno. I've always noticed. We yeah. don't have the uh, present option. It's yes or no, or just don't vote people. Sometimes people yeah. will literally leave the floor during the vote, like a, a vote on an amendment. They'll just leave. Right. And they, they won't vote. That's right. So, you know, I think now we've, 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 got, a clear, we, we've got a clear contrast between some of the votes that Mary's taken that I believe are not, you know, um, aligned with where most Alaskans are at and, you know, my platform and my positions on those policies. So I think that's going to, that's going to provide more information to the voter. They'll be able to make a more informed decision this time. Now you were at the yoga conference last week. I was there too. And, and she spoke, uh, you know, with Kara Moriarty talked about her kind of willow stuff and other votes. But before that, uh, Matt Larkin was up there with uh, Rhodes, Matt Rhodes. That's right. Yeah. And they talked about, you know, polling and political stuff. But they both said that they think this race will be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, congressional race in the country. Did you hear them say that? I, I heard them say that, and I've heard others say that. Is that I've heard do you folks think that's, out of D.C. say that? So, which is you know we're typically kind of this you know we have one vote and one rep or whatever, and it's a pretty cheap cheap state historically compared to other you know places. But that's interesting. You know they said that. Well, there's there's five congressional districts. So there's 435 congressional districts nationwide, right? But there's five congressional districts that Trump won in 2020 that are currently uh, held by Democrats. And so we're one of them. What's the other we're four? We're one of them. I don't know what the other four are. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. But I can tell you this. Alaska is the most red of those five districts. And so we're PBI plus eight, Trump plus 10 district. And uh, the, the Republican um, leadership is dead set on making sure that we get this seat back. Well, and after what we saw in January, I think they're counting every vote uh, because of that whole issue with McCarthy and, or McCarthy and um, 
those were, I mean, that was wild. I, I was, in, I happened to be in Phoenix at the time. Well, we haven't seen anything like that in hundred eighteen seventies, maybe or what, right. Yeah. You know, way I, back. I was in Phoenix visiting a buddy and it was on C-SPAN and he's not into that at all, but it was kind of funny. Like after a while he was like, kind of like, Oh shit, what's, you know, this is wild. And we were watching it, but it was just really, you, I'm sure you watched it. I did. It, right? Of course was, I watched it. Absolutely. I, lo- I love yeah. how they, C-SPAN had full reign of the cameras. Remember they were going like zooming in on, yeah, because when yep. somebody whoever takes over a speaker, they lock down. I think the camera feed. Yeah, but these guys were it was Wild West, you know, and they were doing those. What was the, it like was like the lip syncing? They did the lip syncing ones. Like the, AOC yeah. went up to like yeah. uh, Matt Gates, and it was like weird. Yeah. But which to me wasn't that surprising because I mean in Juno, I don't go to DC, but in Juno you have people that like you you would assume are just like mortal enemies, right? Politically, and they are. Yeah, but they they bullshit with each other. They talk to each other, and I mean it's like fine. Yep, you don't you don't. Always, I guess, see it. If you're watching Gavel, you might see a part of it. But it, it was it was really entertaining. It was like probably some of the best TV, well, political was, TV in a long it time. It was interesting. I think, um, you know, there were, there's been some things happen in this Congress that we haven't seen in a Congress in a while. Uh, one of the things that I think is healthy, actually, for uh, the process in D.C., in the House specifically, is, um, and it wasn't a part of that, but it was a part of the uh, debt ceiling negotiations, was the idea that instead of doing one giant omnibus bill, mm-hmm. we're going to take the 12 appropriations bills and look at each one individually. And uh, that was part of the agreement, and I think that's a, that's a good outcome. I think that's good because a lot of times what's, well, what has been happening for the last few years in, in the Congress is uh, in the desire for expediency, right, um, everything in – Everything goes into one single bill. It's an up or down vote. You might have, you know, one one day to read a two thousand page bill, and out it goes. And that's the that's the national budget for that year. And um, if we're going to actually make meaningful progress on deficit spending, we're going to have to do it line by line. And so breaking these things down into the twelve appropriations bills, I think, is a good. good it's thing. almost hard to believe that. And I think the last time there was a surplus was the nineties when under Clinton. Um, I knew Gingrich was, I guess he was probably speaker then, but it's just almost unfathomable to imagine a time where we have a surplus. That's right. Cause everything's yeah. for 20 more 30 shit, almost 30 years is 25, you know, has 25 years has been deficit. And I think nine 11 contributed quite a bit to that. And you know, all these wars, but well, we have, look, we're going to have to address this. I mean, this is, this is not something we could ignore for much longer. Right, we actually have to address the, the the level of deficit spending that's happening in the nation, and uh, you know, jumping back for a moment to the interest rates, it was just I believe last month that interest payments on the debt have now become the number one budget line item, yeah, in in the budget, so, exceeding national defense spending. What are we at now? Twenty some? Tr- th- I mean, I don't even know what the number is. I mean, it's like there's like thirty three trillion. We're about to cross. I, mean, I, I, I can yeah. like remember when it was fifteen trillion. Yeah, which sounded like insane. Yeah, it's funny. We've we've gone to a point where we don't talk in billions anymore. It's trillions. Trillion here, trillion there. It's it, yeah. that, that that's with COVID and all the money that you know. Before it was like yeah, billions was the number. That's you know, right. Billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. Like even the tarp was was uh, eight hundred billion. It's almost not even a trillion. Yeah, it's almost unfathomable numbers. You you you've actually got to break it down to uh to a level that's okay. How much is it per household? I don't even understand yeah. it because I mean a billion a billion is a thousand million, right? Right. So what's a tr- I mean it's like trillions a thousand billion. So it's, I mean it's it's like we, huge numbers. The, you hear these numbers twenty billion, eight hundred billion, ten trillion. I mean it's, it yeah. doesn't really you know. It's hard to really wrap your mind. So you're saying break it down by a person, like yeah, it's what's be, the debt per person? You, exactly. So when you start when you start things like seeing things like how much are we spending? Um, I don't know. Let's say on on uh, on the Ukrainian conflict, right? That's up to on sixty billion or eighty. Household, how, how much basis. is that? Per, tens of billions for sure. By now. Uh, I think we we're about to cross actually eighty billion in spending, and I think when they uh, reconvene in the Congress, I've heard that there's a proposal for an additional forty billion dollars. Wow, I mean, think think about, it. and like you know, I, I don't like what Russia did. I think it's wrong, but you know, I also think I talked to Paul Foos. We had a podcast a couple of days mm-hmm. ago about this, and I spent a lot of time in Russia, a lot of time in Ukraine. Ukraine is uh, a hyper corrupt country. It's been that way for a long time since right. the ninety. And I just, I just, you know, I said this on Twitter. It was a while ago. It's like people thought it was like heresy. I was like, how do we know where the money's going? Like, how do we know where the we gave we gave exactly we gave the Mujahideen um, and and the, the Afghani's a lot of weapons. 
and training in the 80s. And guess where that ended up? Yeah. So I think, like, to even ask about it, people are like, you can't even discuss it. You know, well, why not? Right. No, I, I, I think part of that is because corruption is not institutionalized here in the way that it is in those we were also friends nations. with Saddam Hussein, back, by the way, back in the day. I mean, Rumsfeld and all those guys were going over there and hooking him up when they were fighting well, the Iranians. Well, right. And if you, rec- if you recall, um, we saw uh, surface-to-air missiles, you know, shoulder-fired SAMs all over, the, all over North Africa and other areas yeah. uh, as a result of sort of weapons pro- proliferation that happened following our involvement in Afghanistan. I mean, how much is one of these stingers? I and mean, what, what is this thing worth? I don't know, 80 grand or 100 grand? Think, think about what the... What that can do, one of those things. Oh yeah, yeah. That can bring down a commercial. I mean, boom, done. You know, that's hundreds right. of people. That's right. And um, and so you know, that's one big concern that people have, and it's a valid concern about where are all these weapons going that are going to the Ukraine. Are they staying in the Ukraine, or are they going elsewhere? And you know, I assume that most. I mean, they are fighting. They are. You know, they, they don't want to get. You know, people live there. It's they're being sure. invaded. Sure. But but it's like, are, is is anybody checking? Are we? I mean, if a plane shows up with. You know, a hundred Stinger missiles. I mean, are all hundred going in the field, or do do five or six get taken off the top for some, you know, some, you know, corruption payment? And where do those go? You know. Well, and and this is, you know, I think at this point, um, the latest number that I heard uh, was four hundred thousand Ukrainians, just on the Ukrainian side, injured or killed. Oh, it's absolutely horrible what's going on. And, and, and I actually really believe that. I don't know if this is the official idea, but it seems to be the policy is very similar to what happened in Afghanistan: is give them enough money and weapons to keep the Russians engaged and bleed the Russians. That was basically the policy then. Bleed the Russians for as much as we can for people and for resources, for money, weapons, all that. And that lasted 10 years. That war. I mean, that was a long time war. And it's like, I, you know, I told this to Paul Foos, uh, who just got back from Russia. He was there for an Arctic conference. Mm-hmm. He was, I think, the only American there in St. Petersburg. But, but it was pretty telling to me when Trump told that lady on CNN, when she said, what do you, you know, how do you, who do you want to win? He goes, I want... At the end, I want people to stop dying. That's right. That was yeah. a controversial thing. To, it I mean, shouldn't be controversial. It's not controversial. No. To, and to, to ask for peace, to work for peace, that's what we should be doing. We, we could end this thing very quickly. In fact, a year ago, they had a deal inked in Budapest uh, to give Don, basically see Donetsk, Donbass, you know, Lugansk, and Crimea, which Crimea, I've been to Crimea yeah. a year after, not even a year after that referendum. I mean, that's Russia. I don't, that's, like it or not, that's Russia, right? That's reality and then Don, you know Donbass has been essentially autonomous since 2014 the thing was done I mean it was inked and then Boris Johnson flew to Kiev yeah and the whole thing fell apart so you got to think like what's really going on what are the motivations of the of the West and it's like are we really letting Ukrainians die and Russians I mean everybody die just so we can keep this thing going is that the po- policy is that the right idea I mean I hope I hope not I hope that's what not. it seems that's what it seems to be happening yeah I hope not I think that we need to be brokers for peace I think it's absolute madness to be fighting a proxy war with a nuclear armed power. And for Alaskans who are listening to this right now, remember, Alaska is early warning missile defense, right? So anything that's that's crossing into the United States is coming likely over Alaskan territory. Like that 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 fucking Chinese balloon. <laughs> that's right. Came over that's here right. first. It did. It came that's over right. Aleutians. You know, I, I just I don't see how it's in uh, America's interest. To, to, to fight a proxy war with a nuclear armed power and push them into an alliance, a tighter alliance with China. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's, it's, um, we, we could definitely make this thing end. Yep. And, um, I, I, it's like been what, just coming up on two years now. I think most people thought it was going to be over in a month. And we're right. com- coming up in March will be two years. So you're, you know, over a year and a half. And you're right, the, the amount of people, I have friends over there in both places, and, and the amount of people suffering and dying, and it's horrible. It's a huge diaspora now, too. So many people have left uh, the country of Ukraine. I went to, uh, you know, in 20, see, right after that invasion, I went to Estonia. And I saw in the hotel, I, was, I mean, there was every Ukrainians pouring into, I mean, they were going Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Germany, all over. Right. Millions of people have left Ukraine. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's... I think this this is going to be a topic of this election, not the topic, but I think in, inflation's you know the economy is going to be the big one, obviously. But this will be a you know a topic. Oh, I presidential. agree. No, I, I definitely agree. I think I think it's this. I think it's the economy. I think it's dealing with some of the long term structural economic problems that we touched on today. I mean, you know, one of the things that people never want to talk about, and uh, you know, but needs to be discussed, is what are we going to do about Social Security? 
right? Mm-hmm. The Social Security Administration and the Congressional Budget Office confirms by 2034, we're not going to be able to make the promised payments into that plan. And folks don't want to touch it. You're hearing a lot of folks, especially on the left, say, oh, don't touch it. Well, if you don't do anything, it's not going to deliver its promise. So you got to do something. So what are we going to do? That's going to be a topic, too. I well, think. It's, I think it's a lot like Juno. You know, we, we people think it's like something's four or five years away. Well, fuck it. I mean, we're talking about got next election, baby. That's what's really, you know. And then, then you get to that point where it's like, we didn't do anything. Shit, we should have done something. That's right. And then, it gets, and then it's harder to solve. What are you hearing? You're going to a lot of, I see you're having events and fundraisers and all these going around. What are you, what are you hearing from people right now? Well, you know, the, the topic on everyone's mind right now is um, what Biden has done with the Anwar lease cancellations. Yeah, that just happened yesterday. Yeah, yep. I saw that. And, you know, I'm, I'm just being flooded with feedback from folks on that. And, uh, the thir- you know, it's not just that, though. It's 13 million acres out of the NPRA and 3 million out of the Beaufort, which, you know, probably is is an even bigger impact to us long term than the Anwar lease cancellation. Um, I've talked to many people in the oil and gas industry and, and everything I've, I've heard for the last three years has been you know, the real opportunities are in the NPRA. And uh, not to say that there's not opportunities in, in Anwar, but, you know, that's where their interest lies. And, uh, you know, when you talk about um, lease cancellations, in my view, right, is that this is just one more action in a long line of actions of cancel culture, right, where Alaska becomes the victim of sort of this long-term campaign from the hard activist left uh, that says, we don't want oil and gas. I mean, if you listen to, if you listen to the statements that uh, Joe Biden has made, public statements, he said he wants to end fossil fuels, period. He wants to end um, federal uh, land leases for oil and gas development, period, period, period. His words. That's his quote, right? Well, just the, the, the raw irony of going to the Saudis, Oh, and Venezuela and Iran now, you know, these are not uh, friendlies. These are adversaries to Americans. And he's going to these people and begging them to to pump more oil, which they are not. We just saw OPEC and Russia uh, cut the production again, which I mean, you know, I guess short term, great for the state. The price of oil is over 90 now and legislators love that. You know, the state does better in that situation, but that's not a... Uh, even though that's good for our state, you know, on, on, in a lot of ways, that's not a good long-term thing for the country, for the world. That's right. If the price of energy is so high. Well, and it and it drives inflation because, you know, as we all know, every physical good that we have has an energy cost baked into it, right? Whether that's food or whether that's, you know, anything that we're be- that's being delivered to us from the lower 48, there's an energy price. As a component I, of that. I don't understand some of these, like, lunatics. I mean, some of these people got elected to the Chugach board. They said they want to turn the gas off. Oh. That, those turbines, is that's what we, that's. Look at what happened in Texas. Oh, yeah. Right? When you when you start moving away from reliable baseload power and you move to something that has high variability, you're going to have problems. And, and now we have the situation where they're saying the gas might run out in five years. And cook, they're already talking about LNG contracts for importing LNG. That's right. You know, it's just like, what the fuck's hap- wrong with our state? We have all this gas, we're washing gas, we have all these opportunities, we have all these resources, but we're stuck, you know? We can't, we, I've wrote a piece of month, you know, last month about the Connect Arm Bridge, which I think should have been built a long time ago, which would yep. be so good for so many things. Yep. Housing, transportation, taking all these trucks, getting them not to go downtown through the Merrill Corridor, all these right. big trucks in the port. Um, the Juno Access Road would have been a great thing for the, cut, take pressure off the ferry system. Yes. So sitting in Watana, I mean, these are all, th- and I like Bill Walker, I really, I really like Bill Walker, but these are all things he canceled. That they haven't even been able to They're, revive with Dunleavy. I mean, he's trying to, I guess, but yeah. they aren't happening. Well, you got to have um, you got to have enough consistency in state government over a long period of time in order to do some of these bigger projects. And you know, just like you pointed out, Bill Walker canceled some of these things. And uh, if my view, if we had a, a Republican governor at that time, that Juno Road, that Juno Access Road goes in. Um, but uh, look. We've got to unify as a state around some of the big sort of mega opportunities and make sure that we're on the same page and then just make them priorities. You know, we're losing, in my opinion, we're losing some of that that pioneering spirit that's defined Alaskans for so long. I mean, we look at how many people have left in the last decade. Yeah. We're losing people, the young people, especially, you know, college age people that are leaving 
not coming back. It's a real, it's a real problem. People used to come here. People used to come here. Damn, there's an opportunity, you know, get a good job, make money. Yep. You know, take care of your family. That was a thing that was for a long time defined this place. Yeah. There are, there are some real pockets of entrepreneurship that I've seen, you know, on the campaign trail. I mean, there's some amazing things that are happening in Ketchikan. There's some amazing things that are happening in Fairbanks and landmine radio, huh? Huh? (laughs) Landmine radio, of course. (laughs) And, uh, Wasilla Palmer. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of growth out there. So it's not, it's not as though, uh, we don't have, uh, some exciting private sector opportunities that are being realized in the state, but we need, uh, some, some significant, uh, infrastructure investments that will change the character of uh, the connectedness that we have as and a state. Speaking of infrastructure, you know, that bill passed and, you know, going back to the inflation and all these, but, you know, we got a lot of money and I'm just kind of curious. I mean, I'm sure it's being, I see these emails and I know there's stuff happening in some rural places, but I'm kind of like, where's where that money? Like, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> we I had a lot of money, didn't I, we? I uh, saw a stat and, you know, this is, it's a directional number, but I think it's 60 to 70% of, uh, of the infrastructure money has been spent with foreign corporations so far. And oh, so, shit, yeah, really? Yeah, nationwide. And um, and so, you know, because a lot of these... Well, that are, seems um, not productive, you know, not productive. Well, you know, so part of the challenge with, with the infrastructure money, of course, is that a lot of it went to sort of Green New Deal priorities. And mm-hmm. a lot of those supply chains are owned by, you know, Chinese corporations and other foreign corporations where they control the raw materials and the manufacturing. And I know there's been a, there's been a big push to move some of that uh, manufacturing and activity domestically, but we've got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there, there's also some, uh, you know, there's a lot of money in, in these, in that bill and other, you know, sister legislation for, uh, Alaska broadband, which, what? you know, I think is important. Well, I keep yeah. hearing, seeing press releases on, you know, it's in the billions of broadband grant money, all these companies, you know, it's going to be a, you know, a thing, which is good. I mean, all these, a lot of places in Alaska. I mean, they're well. It's Starlink now. What a game changer! Well, I've, I've I talked to so many people that are using Starlink. Well, that's the amazing thing. So, uh, you even, know, even Nat, Nat, Nat Hurst, who's not not a you know conservative guy, not probably not a Elon Musk guy. He, he tweeted out or posted a month ago. He was out there fishing, and he was like, you know, say what you want about Elon Musk, but goddamn, this Starlink is real nice. Well, you know, and that's that's the amazing thing about all of this. So, yes, there's there's billions of dollars for you know, hardline infrastructure that is, um, it's really focused on fiber. Just give everybody a Starlink. Yeah. So, but there's no, 500 there's, bucks, isn't there's, it there's the... no real money in there for satellite. And yet satellite is coming in from the private side and, and solving. What's so it many cost? Of these Five problems. or 600 bucks. And then it's like a hundred bucks a month or it's, it's, it's not that, I mean, it's about that. Yeah. It's way cheaper than like the HughesNet or the other stuff that, you know, microcom where they're charging. I mean, I used to work in telecom and I, some of the clients out there in rural Alaska, you know, they have internet. It's like, Thousands of dollars a month. Right, right. And What's the cost for us? Is, I thought it was 800 or 600 or something for, for Starlink, for the unit. Oh, yeah. It's it's about that. It's that it's about that order of magnitude. It I've talked be, to I think it might be 499 but I don't. I've know, talked to many people that are, that are using it, and they're like, this is great. It's great. And, uh, look, you know, some folks have sort of criticized, well, there's a, there's a certain amount of bandwidth that's available in that spectrum. Um, that's true to a degree, but. Uh, as well, that's as, that's as, that's, as, that's as any. It's um, true. Yeah, but as they as they add additional satellites, the density increases, and so the the throughput capacity of that mm-hmm. network increases. So yeah, going back to the you know, Green New Deal and, and renewable. I mean, I'm all I'm all for whatever the mark. You know, those things are, you know, fine with me. Um, but I don't understand. It's like puzzling to me why Democrats haven't come out in favor of like mining and. Domestic, you know, because yes. you need the like, they're for all the green stuff and all the you know EVs and, and right. solar panels and wind farm like, but you have to make that shit and you, got, you have look, to mine like it, if it can't be grown, it must be mined. If right, if, you if, have to get that out of the ground. Does you can't just snap your fingers and it materializes. Especially battery lithium and cobalt. And right. All, I mean, this is like you know difficult stuff to find. We have this graphite one now deal in Nome, which is yep. you know, graphite's a big. That thing goes. That's going to be a, a you know big. It's an deal. exciting project. You know, I, I would say this um, for for a lot of for for a lot of years, and it's happening now. Uh, the left, in my view, is is kind of practiced an, an environmental hypocrisy. Okay, where they've said, "Look, we don't want this stuff done in the United States," but they're perfectly fine 
with that sort of work being done in some of the worst environmental jurisdictions in the world. And not just labor, too. Labor, too. And I call it environmental arbitrage because mm-hmm. they raise the standards here and they keep the standards low somewhere else. And they look the other way and say, look at all the good things we're doing for the it earth. Just, it just, if, if and, you know, these Democrats, they're dumb people. I mean, they, 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 you'd think they would figure out, wait a minute, if we come out and we are in favor of the domestic energy and domestic mining, and then that can get us to what we want over here on the energy, on the green, like, that would put the Republicans in a tough spot. They but they don't, don't do that. They, they, don't, they, do they don't do that. So they I just, do it, doesn't, it. it doesn't make any, and like I asked my Democrat, I said, well, how are you against this before this? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's irreconcilable. And, and it's not, it's, you're right. They really, there's no really answer for it. Well, and it, so I'll just give you an example. So for the, in order to achieve the net zero objective of 2050, right, which is an objective coming from the, you know, the climate activist world, right? They've said, hey, net zero by 2050. In order to achieve that, we have to mine more copper than has been mined in the entire human history since 4000 BC combined between now and 2050. In 27 years, we've got to mine more copper alone. And that's not counting all the other critical minerals that you need. And oh, by the way, copper is not even considered a critical mineral. Obviously it is, but it's not considered a critical mineral. There's so many other things that you're going to have to mine. We, we need... I mean, what do you, for these, for these like cobalt... Lithium, graphite, um, I think molybdenum, some for other things, which is a bunch of that stuff out there. Pebble minus molybdenum, but um, yeah, it's we, we Africa. Obviously, there's a ton of mining over there. South America, China. It's unbelievable. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's just unbelievable how much we're going to have to do between now and then. And the problem is, every year that you delay, every year you don't do that you're less likely to achieve the objective. I, frankly, I don't think the objective is achievable. And part of the reason it's not achievable is because of the political headwinds that you're pointing out, where the, the hard environmental left is, is shouting for, a, for an energy transition that they don't well, actually and the, support. And, and the other real problem, and Rick Perry talked about this at the Guyoga conference last week, is that these people, and they'll, they'll never really say it, some might, but they want to make sure... People in poor country, you know, in poor places with, you know, that are developing, that don't have the, the lifestyle that we're used to, they want to make sure they never get that lifestyle. They want to hold them down because yeah. for them to be able to do better, you know, they, they have to, there has to be more um, mining and there has to be That's more right. development. There has to be, more, and there has to be, you know, more cars. And, and it's like, we got, we got ours. Well, fuck them. They can't get theirs. You know, which imagine, think about that for a second. Well, like, I want to, I want to, billions of people yeah. in the world who want to, live, you know, improve the quality of their life for their family. Well, let's get, you know, step outside of politics for a second and talk about something that's a little more esoteric, I guess. There's, there's kind of two competing themes that are happening, right? Um, one is an, what you would call an anti-humanist theme. An anti-humanist theme says there's too big of a footprint on the planet. We need to reduce humanity's footprint, maybe even reduce the number of people that are on the planet. I think right? some people really believe we just need to like have, have people, like a lot of people die. But, that, that's, so that's like, that's, if we can cut the population from 7 billion, 8 billion to 4 billion, well, great. That's the anti-humanist perspective. And unfortunately, a lot of the Democrat party, a lot of the left in our nation has kind of adopted, whether intentionally or sort of unintentionally adopted an anti-humanist mindset. Then you've got a transhumanist mindset. And the transhumanist mindset is kind of, defined by things like Elon Musk, right, is a, is a transhumanist, self-described transhumanist, where he's trying to connect us to computers through Neuralink, and he's trying to, uh, you know, add AI as a layer to humanity, right, which is seems to be happening. we got ChatGPT4 and all these other things that augment us. So, which, 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 which in a lot of ways, Terminator shit, you know, I kind of scared. Well, bit, yeah, yeah. I don't know, I'm not right. by any means an expert, but I do get like, I think hmm. you need to be careful with this technology. A lot of movies but, about that shit, you know. You, know, you got to be careful. You got to be careful. Um, and you know, for people who have studied it for their entire lives, you hear them coming out here in the last six months to a year saying, "Hey, folks, you know, slow down." I mean, there's been. I watched a who was that some AI expert, and he was talking about Congress, and he was like, "These people have no idea what's going. Like, they have no clue what's coming." And, no, and they better well this, figure it out. This is the problem. Okay, so now let's get back into politics and talk about you know, how this connects, right? We've got too many members of Congress that are more worried about how many Instagram followers they have 
than making sound public policy, right? They're not, a, when, you, when you're dealing with folks who are, who are, you know, sort of in their 80s, it's clear that their mental faculties are starting to slip. And these are the people we're relying on to make those decisions. This is not good for I mean, the nation. Is, is, I mean, Chuck Grassley was chair. I mean, great guy. You know, he's done his time and served his, he's in his 80s. I mean, Feinstein, you know, Biden, McConnell. I mean, these are like the leaders. We've, we've got to move forward. We've got to move beyond this. And uh, Pelosi's up there in her 80s, too. She's running again. I that's right. Think. She just declared yesterday she's going to run again. Saw that, yeah. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's it's up to the voters to make a change. But, um, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, the Constitution has uh, minimum age requirements. Yeah. <laughs> and there's been a lot pretty, of folks, pretty young, Pretty low, too, because back then it was. Yeah, it's 20, life, 25 for Congress and 35. Five for president, right? But 20, 20, 30 for Senate, I think. 30 for Senate. And then okay. 25 for House. Yeah. You know. And, uh, you know, I really think it's smart for us to, to take a hard look at maybe we need some, some uh, either some testing well, I mean, to give, or to give, an age cap because. To give you an idea yeah. of, you know, con- that was in the seven, you know, 1780, 1789 Constitution. The last Constitution was, you know, many hundred, almost 200 years later. We're our 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 minimum for uh, governor is thirty, and then it's twenty one for state house and twenty five for. So I mean they've things got tweaked a little bit, right? Right. So, but you're right. There's no but in the our constitution we have a maximum age for the for the uh, for the for this to be a judge yeah. seventy. Yeah. So you know Winfrey just had to resign, which this is, is re- these kind are of, reasonable. That things. kind of sucks because I like Winfrey, but he had to resign. He was seventy. That's yeah. it. If you can't fly a plane with a couple hundred people in it after sixty-five, you shouldn't be able to fly a country with three hundred plus million people in it. Yeah. Right. Past a certain age, it just that's rational thinking, and we need to inject some additional rational thinking and set aside some of the political expediency that's taken. It seems the like there's got to be. Some, I mean, I don't know if I mean because. You know, it's funny. You look at Trump, and he's what seventy six. He's he's not that much younger than Joe Biden, but he's he's. he's I don't know if he's on what he's taking, but he's he's kind of pretty with it. You know, I mean, he's he's. He seems not, to he be. Doesn't, he doesn't look his age or act his age. Right, right. But there are other people that are just like, you know, and you talk about the voters, and that's ultimately true. But you know, you you know the power of incumbency and money and power, and those are hard things to to. It's hard you know, for people to give that up. It seems, and it's hard for yeah. people challengers. In your case, now you know it's hard to punch through sometimes when you're up against, you know, people go to the power and they hedge and they, they look at, okay, this is the person, whether it's Congress or governor or legislature, you know, they, 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 they know that person, they easier to raise money, easier to get kind of momentum. So it's in a lot of these cases you're talking about where these people are really old. Well, they're also really powerful. Right. And it's hard, it's harder to, you know, sometimes punch through to, to the people, to the voters. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important for folks to remember, you know, we, we've dealt with, with things like this in the past, we've, we've got dozens of, you know, a couple dozen constitutional amendments that we've gone through, mm-hmm. right? We can do it again. Even and Reagan was considered old when he was elected. He was like, what, 70? Yeah. I mean, he was, he was, he was like, at the time, that was a big, that was that famous. Yeah, that debate uh, exchange. Yeah, right? with a. Uh, Great joke. Was that Mondi, who was a, um, was that Mont, who was he running against in, in, in 80? Anyways, yeah. but it was, it was, my opponent wants to make age a part of this campaign. Yeah. Um, I don't want to hold that as youth against him, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was Mondale. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good one. Yeah. Well, I know you got to run, but uh, great. I mean, it's always like talking to you because I feel like we can really talk about shit, you know? We're, well, and like we said at the beginning of the show, um, you know, it's really, it's nice to have a long, long form discussion. And, uh, you know, I wish more candidates would take the time to do yeah, that. Yeah, I, mean, I pretty much invite everybody, you know, yeah. I really do. And some people are happy to do it. Other, other Others aren't. But, I mean, I, I like to talk to people and. You know, especially people that are, it's always puzzling to me when somebody wants to run for office and ask people for a vote, but they don't want to talk, they don't want to tell people what they think or, you know, their views or their yeah, ideas. Yeah, or, or it's so high level that you go, well, did I really learn anything? <laughs> no, I didn't really, you know, they like cats and dogs and that's it. That's well, and this it. is yeah. like what I've told you before we started. I mean, I've, over the years, I've done a lot of these and it's like some people, I'll, I'll interview them the first time and then they get elected and then they, they, they get less chatty. Right. They, they, yeah. they aren't as willing to. Because they're nervous. Because they're like, "Oh fuck, if I say something." Well, wrong, you know, get, you this know? is this is part of the problem that we have in politics generally. Is that you know, once and you just put your finger on it a moment ago, but once people sort of get that that taste of authority or power, 
They don't want to give it up. And but, so they, they become fearful. And, and the, the problem is, in a job like this, you can't be afraid. You can't be afraid you're going to lose the next election. You've got to do the work. And if you're too worried about losing your job, it turns out you don't do your job. There, there, there's a few rare, rare, I mean, one of them is Bill Wilkowski. I mean, that guy will talk to me anytime. He'll, not, not, he's, you know, he'll say what he thinks. He's, he's one of those people that he's been there a long time. But maybe, and maybe after so long, you know, you get to the point where it's like, it's the opposite. You're like, I don't give it, you know, I'm not, I'm not. Bert Stedman. He ain't going anywhere. Right. <laughs> he's, he's good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it was great talking to you, um, Nick. So if folks want to, I mean, you're, I know you're Nick Begich. I'm sure you're Google you. There's a website. But. Oh yeah. Uh, Alaskans for Nick is our website. We've got a very active Facebook uh, and Instagram presence out there. We're Nick for Alaska is a handle. Uh, you can find us easily with a search. So, uh, you know, folks are out there and they want to be involved in the campaign. Certainly we're looking for, uh, volunteers and support across the state of Alaska. Uh, obviously, uh, campaign donations are more than welcome. And uh, if you'd like to reach out to the campaign, you got a question, uh, please do that. We try to, try I, to get back to folks. I know the uh, third quarter is uh, closing out here pretty soon, right? So That's right. You, you, you'll see a, a lovely uh, analysis of, of that in the Alaska Political Report, which uh, you're a recent subscriber. Oh, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank, yeah. Thank you for subscribing. But yeah, we'll be, we'll be covering that third quarter deal there and I guess October that'll be out. So I think it's it, it will be interesting. And you know, you put you made a comment a, a moment ago about um, you know the power of incumbency and that you know folks are sort of hedge and do those things. And uh, I think it'll be interesting to see you know for one thing where a lot of that uh, political political action committee money is coming. Oh from. yeah, no, we'll, yeah. we'll be we'll be checking out watching all of it. So yeah. appreciate it, Nick Baggage. Thanks for coming on. Great conversation. We'll have you on again. I always like talking to you. It's uh like I said, it's uh talking to you. It can feel like have a pretty interesting, educated conversation on a lot of interesting topics. So. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to the next. Okay, thanks a lot, Nick. Appreciate it. Nick Begich, congressional candidate, Republican. Folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.